0: Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Welcome to season seven, where we will continue to delve into the world of coaching, learning, and development. My guests are going to present their key learnings for a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. I'll now hand over to them to introduce themselves.
1: Hello, it's great to be here. My name is Leslie McKenna. I'm a coach developer in both the Sports Scotland system and the UK Sports System, and I also work part-time as a programme manager for GB Snow Sports. My background is as a professional snowboarder. I've competed at three Olympics and countless other World Cups and independent events, X Games and whatnot, and coached um, the international Roxy team at the highest level also, um, before moving into program management and then coach developer work.
2: Hi, I'm Sarah Murray. Thanks for having me on today. I am an owner of Performance Edge psychology consultancy, uh, working as an an independent performance psychologist. Um, Human being first, uh, come from a background of competing and playing sport, Uh, so I played National League hockey and and was a former PE teacher um, before my squiggly career journey um, took me down the route of of psychology within performance. I'm just off the back of nearly a decade full-time in professional football, uh, but I've worked across multiple sports environments and continue
0: to do so fantastic thank you both so much I'm, I'm genuinely so excited for this conversation just I guess the, the little preamble we had is um, definitely sparked my interest as to, to where this will go so um, yeah just a reminder to anyone listening before we do start please check out the show notes on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to all the content that we discuss so Leslie we are coming to you first what are you going to chat to us about
1: I had to think long and hard Phil, about what I would um, bring to, to um, this chat. There's so many great books and papers and subject areas out there that, I, yeah, it was almost uh, really difficult to choose. I've picked a book called The Art of Impossible. And The Art of Impossible is by a person called Stephen Kotler. Um, he's written a number of books. And, and why I picked The Art of Impossible is it references quite heavily action sports culture and free sports culture so I'll just a a quick definition of what I mean by action sports and free sports they're often interchangeable I'll stick to action sports so as not to confuse people Uh, freestyle snowboarding is a part of the action sports family and generally they have their roots in surf and skate culture of the you know the of California in the the 60s and 70s or post-war even further back than that and in Europe, a little bit more related to ski bum culture or climbing culture, again post-Second World War. And um, they're now Olympic sports, many of the action sports, including freestyle snowboarding, surfing, skateboarding, sport climbing, freestyle BMX, and soon to enter into um, the sphere is breakdancing, parkour. Um, so the, the new sports, if you like, the youth sports. By extension, action sports also includes traditional climbing, ski touring, ski, ski mo is um, ski mountaineering. That's also going to be an Olympic sport in 2026. Um, but backcountry touring or even hill walking, whitewater kayaking, windsurfing, anything by extension that's done in the outdoors. Um, is usually part of uh, outdoors with action sports boots is, is in the family um, Stephen Kotler the person who wrote the art of impossible and um, the first book I read of his was a book called the rise of superman and it was in, um, written in 2014 and immersed in action sports culture and really followed a number of action sports athletes who had managed to pull off impossible or seemingly impossible feats and from that research he really honed in on the idea that these athletes were increasing the possibilities of human evolution through the way they were able to really quickly learn new skills outside of their existing skill set by accessing flow state and um, this was Uh, exampled by um, a story of Laird Hamilton who's a big wave surfer uh, and the story in The Rise of Superman about Laird that that, um, examples this is Laird was in a situation he'd never been in before surfing a wave bigger than anyone had ever surfed before and he managed to pull off a technical move um, invented in the heat of the moment that saved his life and he unpacked how that was even possible so when you're training or coaching uh, high-skill sports, the, the the skill acquisition theories would say that you have to practice these skills thousands of times, you know, 10,000 hours, um, and <laughs> to be able to pull them off in the heat of the moment. Yet Laird Hamilton was able to do exactly the right thing at the right time in this situation. What was going on there? And in The Rise of Superman, um, Stephen Cutler goes heavily into brain chemistry and the neurology behind the brain chemistry, which I think is really interesting. And the whole sphere of of, um, brain chemistry or um, biofeedback markers, so brain and body markers in psychological states is like um, the the consciousness area. How do you create consciousness? How do you access it? It's definitely a cutting edge in action sports learning. So, for example, I'm going down a bit of a rabbit hole here, but I will bring it back to the art of impossible. (laughs) In the rise of superman, he points out that there are five main neurochemicals that help to sharpen focus and bring on that idea of the flow state. I'm pretty sure most people in coaching will have at least heard of flow state. It's it's not an uncommon term that's been brought into the coaching and um, space where whereby and um, people are more able to focus more able to access their skillful selves more able to pull off their highest level tricks and it it ends with a positive feeling of well-being and you know achievement so that that's flow state there's a whole um, body of work on that um, but the the neurochemicals involved are dopamine which helps to sharpen the focus and helps people find novel solutions to hard problems. Norepinephrine, which also helps maintain focus, actually increases blood sugar, emotional control and attention. Anandamide, this boosts creativity and reduces feelings of fear. So we'll come back to creativity because that's a big theme in the art of impossible. Endorphins, they are obviously involved in any exercise and they help you just keep going, reduce pain. They're very, very powerful chemical actually, um, hundred times more powerful than medicinal morphine if you go by the um, chemical makeup and serotonin, so responsible for the afterglow of having been in the zone. The zone is also um, often used to describe flow state. In the art of Superman, he, um, Stephen Kotler um, documents a number number of occasions of these top athletes top action sports athletes from freestyle snowboarding to whitewater calf and kayaking to free climbing to big wave surfing where the the athlete has pulled off the impossible and suggests that there's something really powerful going on with flow states he also notes that um, the best way to achieve flow is to find a community who shares your passion So there's a communal element to the flow state or the flow being more likely to happen. Um, So since 2014, um, Stephen Cutler's actually written a number of books. Some are part of the journey towards the art of impossible, one of them being a book called Stealing Fire. Stealing Fire really unpacks the idea of non-ordinary states of consciousness and how they relate to the flow state Um, and in that book he goes I won't mention much about this book but just as background to the art of impossible he does a lot of research with the navy seals and they research that idea of group flow and accessing a higher state of skill or problem solving communally in a group how does that work what happens what is the the mechanism behind that brain states, how does it relate to other um, practices that produce um, different consciousness states? So for example, meditation um, goes into the pharmacology side, the the research they're currently doing into psychedelics in America to treat ex-military personnel who are suffering from PTSD with with really good effects, actually, and um, so that he has unpacked all of those subjects already. And then he, he kind of puts these ideas together in the arts of impossible and suggests that it, it's really a kind of tips and tricks books for the delay person. But I think there's lots of really interesting things in here. So you must if you, you go to read it, you must read it from that perspective. It's a tips and tricks, public book, popular bestseller kind of deal. but the, The main message is that to pull off the impossible, you should or one should focus on motivation, learning, creativity and flow. And I find that really interesting because when when we set up the GB Park and Pipe Team Program back in 2012, when freestyle snowboarding and big air and slope style events first went into the Olympics for ski and snowboard, We we had a really, um, I guess, in-depth brainstorming session with the head ski coach, the head snowboard coach, so Pat Sharbo, Hamish McKnight, and myself, who I was coaching at the time. How are we gonna do this? How do we pull off the impossible? What is our art of impossible? And we thought we need, what are key values? What are the things we must keep sight of to be able to, to do the impossible? Because really expecting, People from athletes from the UK to be able to win medals in freestyle snow sports on the Olympic stage is pretty much the art of impossible. So we, we that was our game. You know, we, that, we had quite a lot of. We were bringing knowledge and expertise, experience at least, to the table. Um, and the the values we came up with were fun, passion, progression, and collaboration, which are not dissimilar to. The Art of Impossible, four key points of motivation, learning, creativity, and flow. So the Art of Impossible obviously piqued my attention. It's really in our wheelhouse when it comes to freestyle, snowboarding, and action sports culture. The Art of Impossible proposes that to have motivation really going into self-determination theory here so I won't touch on that I know you've talked about this in other podcasts so intrinsic motivators far more powerful than extrinsic and um, although extrinsic motivators in an evolutionary sense help you to survive you know the need to get food shelter and safety once you have those things the intrinsic motivators become way more powerful and going through the intrinsic motivators he splits them up into a list and and then the list he he um, ends up with is curiosity passion purpose autonomy and mastery and and then he, he goes through these intrinsic motivators one by one offering tips on how to to build, first of all, curiosity, um, and then how to, to build a passion from the curiosity, and then focuses in on, um, once you find what you're curious about and turned it into a passion, then a purpose is 100% necessary to build the drive to be motivated enough to put the work in, and the purpose is communal. You need, the purpose needs to matter, not just for you, but be part of something that's shared, I think that's for me really key. Um, and all these, these um intrinsic motivators are tied to your body releasing dopamine. So you get a little fix afterwards, it makes you feel good. It's you're wired as a human to experience good feelings going through this process. So that keeps it going. By the time you get to autonomy and mastery, your autonomy, he's defining it as the freedom to pursue your purpose which is interesting because that's perhaps slightly different from a definition of autonomy that we might come across in autonomy supportive coaching behaviours, but not too dissimilar. Um, And then the mastery as the desire to get better at the things you do. And Where flow state fits into the autonomy and mastery in terms of um, the art of impossible is that flow is what makes it all happen. So to to have the freedom to to pursue your purpose and to gain mastery over what it is you're doing, you must access this flow state I making sense so far. It's quite a lot in here. Um, And then he offers a number of tips. How do you do this? So he suggests that goals are essential, long term goals, short term goals. We know all about that in in um, sport coaching world he brings in the concept of grit again using lots of the research and theories that we we are quite familiar with in in the coaching world he brings in growth mindsets and in the context of you you must believe it is impossible it's sorry, it's possible to improve so if you already think you're predestined to to only reach a certain level then that's going to hold you back He lists a number of research, offers links to research in each area, which I think is really great. Um, And then he homes in on the the importance of the feelings of frustration to drive the learning process. I think this is really important, especially as we consider um, in light of the White Report, which I know we mentioned in the the preamble, how do you do difficult or hard things ethically? How do you do that? And that idea that frustration is part of the learning process, we can hold on to that without frustration needing to be ethically unsavory or unsound, I think. That's a a by the by. So in The Art of Impossible, um, interestingly, frustration states are linked to the release of norepinephrine, and norepinephrine helps you focus. It helps you keep to your goal. It helps you um, home in on what it is you're trying to learn. So it actually promotes the learning process. Kotler um, goes on to offer a number of tips on on uh, how to learn. They're really interesting. I won't talk too much about them. We can go back to them if if needed. And then um, brings in creativity. So. The interesting points he makes about creativity in terms of trying to pull off the impossible is that it allows the the person pursuing the impossible act to to access pattern recognition and pattern matching in a really novel way. So they they are more able to see connections that they would otherwise miss. And to be able to do that, they must feel psychologically safe enough they mustn't feel threatened or that they, their ideas are, are not connected up, that they have no purpose. So that works, explains the brain chemistry, and I am no brain chemist, so I'm, I'm paraphrasing very much here when I start to talk about brain, brain chemicals. This is a, yeah, definitely me, my curiosity from the book. So neurologically involves two different brain networks working in tandem with a third brain network working slightly differently than it would in the average case. The attention network and the imagination network are working simultaneously. And that's, that doesn't happen in non-creative processes. And then there's a network called the salience network and normally, the salience network suppresses familiar stimulus or stimuli, sorry, so that you ignore stuff that's irrelevant. When you're working creatively um, or in a creative space, creative flow, if you like, um, that doesn't work in the same way. You're able to, to use familiar stimuli and reposition them to spot new patterns. And um, that becomes a form of innovation and learning. Um, the important thing to know is that this can't happen if you're in a bad mood you have to be happy you have to be in a good mood to access creative space so stress pressure and you know time time poor environments all going to kill creativity and the the creative process process brings insight which helps solve problems and finds novel solutions to difficult situations how do you get in a good mood there are suggestions obviously here and i you know there these are infinite and obviously individual to each person the, the suggestions mentioned in the book are meditation gratitude practice yoga practice exercise mindfulness sleep healthy living in general um, solitude and space so these are all things that can be seen as a little bit quirky um, especially in high performance sports spaces. You know, if um, we were to to spend money or how would you I'm not going to use specific cases, how would one allocate solitude and space and, you know, collaborative mindfulness? into a funding structure at the moment it's not possible as far as i've seen from being a program manager that's that would be a really difficult allocation to make and to remain accountable for and so we we can't do that the system is not able to cope with uh, producing good moods potentially Um, maybe there's something interesting to unpack there it's just a, a thought in the passing He brings it all back round to where he started off with the the, um, rise of Superman to flow state. So flow is the ultimate condition for achieving the impossible. Um, He notes that flow feels mystical, and I think that's, a. um, am referencing that, we're going back to the how do you produce good mood states, because I think that idea of mysticism and high performance sport is often um, seen as mutually exclusive so the whole marginal gains athlete as machine physiological approach to profiling often cuts out the the space for philosophical or especially mystical thinking meta let's call it metaphysical maybe that's the safer zone and philosophy metaphysics crosses better or more easily into usefully into the to Kath Bishop's thinking, I think, Um, flow characteristics for, you know, just in case anybody's not come across flow, being in the present moment, being focused on the present moment, a feeling of oneness, a feeling of, of acting your true, true mission, if you like. And so that, and Kotler then goes on in the art of impossible to to um, propose a number of strategies that you can use um, as you'd expect from a general public self-help book. I won't go into them. Um, The the body of the work is more around how do the, the motivation, the learning, the creativity and flow fit together. And I think there's some useful ideas in there that we're already using in action sports, some of it by accident because it's culturally fitting and that's just Kind of how people do things but some of them with intention and some of them have already been researched a little bit a little bit of degree or at least used intentionally and um, so yeah that's the art of impossible
0: wonderful thank you so much what a what a brilliant explanation um, I don't even know where to start there's so much um I guess I'm going to take it a couple of steps back and it's a slightly left field question but I I think it will hopefully then lead back into breaking some of this down a little bit more of the detail so I think everything you've talked about there obviously completely resonates with the free sports and and how that I guess organically they've developed and the nature of those types of sports and obviously then you mentioned as well how many of those have now moved into being Olympic sports and others that will come on board, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think there is a massive contradiction there in terms of you said you can't get into a, a flow state if you're stressed and if there's lots of pressure and all this type of stuff? Do you think there is an inherent contradiction between exceptionally high performance around, let's, let's take the Olympics, for example, and free sports coming together where suddenly you're you know a country is rooting for you and there's a gold medal on the line and funding and all of these types of things it, is that almost the antithesis of we're going out there to express ourselves and explore what is possible and I appreciate you've always had elements of competition within free sport but that that kind of just amplifies it to a new level so do, do they work together do you think?
1: So this is such a contested area and has been since freestyle snowboarding entered the Olympic arena in 1998, and you know there's there's been a lot of of um, acrimonious situations have arisen, and um, over the last 24 years in snowboarding, it's it's pretty interesting actually to unpack. I think it can be exclusive, but it doesn't have to be. However, I've been wrestling for this for with this for a good 20 years you know, since I was competing and and, um, and trying to persuade sports journalists who were used to writing very much from a mainstream sports perspective that the point of snowboarding was not winning. <laughs> and they're all like, what do you mean? Why are you here? Are you going to try and win? Of course I'm gonna try and win, but that's not the point. Um, so unpack, unpack that. What is the value and relevance of excellence? So, and at first, so for years I've been saying, it's not about the winning. It's not about, it's not about them. Actually, in the last kind of six months or so, I've thought, why don't I turn this around and say, it's all about winning. (laughs) And people go, oh, this is different. You know, I didn't say that before. What do you mean? Have you changed your mind? So we don't talk about what, what it goes into, the winning performance, the excellence of the winner. And if, if you look into, um, even the, you know, Banner du or, or um, I don't know how you say his name, the, the original Olympics, the idea of a noble win is about everybody putting in their best efforts to bring out what is humanly the best performance. And everybody is valuing that as a human excellence. It's about the the goods of participation. That's I'm taking ideas from from Alistair McIntyre there. Uh, And a way to value excellence as a human endeavor that's got a communal value. So if, and what this looks like in action sports, and especially in freestyle snowboarding, and, and certainly I can vouch for, for the freestyle snowboarding perspective, there are many, many competitions whereby world's first attempts are, are um, landed in an Olympic finals or a next Games finals. X Games is really big in action sports, arguably up until I'd say maybe the last Olympic cycle, bigger than the Olympics. Um, so what happens there is the, the athletes spar with one another. I'll do it if you'll do it. Let's do it together. And they are equally as happy to see one of their competitors. And these athletes are fiercely competitive. They definitely 100% would like to have the best trick on the day. But if it's not them, they also value the other, the, their competitors' excellence as well. There's a nobility to the production of excellence that has a communal value and that's quite different to only valuing the win for a medal and for the extrinsic and um, goods that are attached to the medal including for the good of other other people in terms of extrinsic or intrinsic so some of these ideas cross really well into the long win thinking yeah.
2: And and then I was sparked as you were talking there by a couple of things that the word competition actually gets its sort of original Latin meaning from strive together, you know, competitors cooperating and collaborating. That was that was where this word, the narrative even came, came from many, many years ago. And what I'm hearing from you there is that perfect example of the original idea of what competition was, which was. To, to work with and strive together with somebody um, that one of you, if not both of you, would achieve your absolute highest level and achieve the excellence that you had on that given day, be it snowboarding it being across whatever the sporting context was. Um, and it's really interesting to, to hear you speak about the, the being in a good mood. And, and again, the word win, um, originally it's German origin, was from, from the word wunia, um, which means joy. And that actually winning was about joy rather than smashing the life out of the the guy or the girl next to you on the on the snowboard or, or on the football pitch or wherever it might be. Um, so there's lots there that, that's really, really curious. Um, I'd love to actually just question you for the rest of this podcast, if I'm honest.
1: Um, that was I really enjoyed listening to that, Leslie. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Um, did that answer your question, Phil? I went off on a bit of a tangent. I think I did. No.
0: No, no, no. Yeah, no, I think it's a brilliant answer. And, and I think Sarah's summarized it really nicely there. And I I guess we look at sport and the rivalries that happen in sport. People are great because of other people. You like you can't be great in isolation because there's no reference point, can you? you? You just it just doesn't happen. We think about any sport, the greatest moments are because there's a battle and you are at your best because somebody else is at their best. And I, I think you put that wonderfully. And yeah, I think that probably answers a, a lot of those questions and I'm thinking for any coaches or performers listening to this it's it's probably them maybe even redefining why and how they compete. as you say it's it's not necessarily that extrinsic outcome of results they're they're always nice, ego gets involved and it becomes complicated. but actually how are you how are you redefining that rivalry with? somebody else in your weight category or whatever it might be or the team down the road that you have a you know a local derby with or something else like that 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 one-upmanship almost actually can be I think a real positive whereas maybe sometimes we look at that as quite a negative thing certainly from a coaching perspective
1: I think there's a, a really useful um takeaway again from the art of impossible where um so Stephen Cotler talks about finding a narrative between the intersection of curiosity, passion, purpose, and that to to make sense of your way forward. You know, humans are hardwired to make that into a story. And if you can find a narrative that you can share, then you can bring other people along with you. And certainly, I also teach yoga and, and run workshops in the backcountry space, and we use narrative a lot to help people find a, a shared vision and a shared meaning. And I think that's a practical tool that we don't use enough in high-performance sport. We, we, um, more and more, we're seeing, and I think this is all really great, um, work on coaches' biographies, work on narratives, how these all fit together, but the the creative aspect of of communicating through narrative, whether or not that's visual pictures um, markings or words or um, even the more obscure arts, if you like, that's a slightly untapped and can be a lot of fun. So um, in terms of what could you try, and um, playing with building narratives is one thing. We did do that in Park and Pipe in, in terms of and we use social media. Social media has changed a lot in the last ten years. Would we do this again? I'm not sure because there obviously there's lots of pros and cons to social media. Going right back to 2012, when Instagram was just an infant, <laughs> we intend intentionally use social media to build narrative by talking about tricks and to, talking and and. Um, sharing the value, the communal value, the idea of communal value through the tricks learnt rather than talking about winning and results. And although it was something quite subtle and simple, it had a massive payback for us in terms of directing the narrative. So there are lots of practical things you can do with, with this space if you work with narratives.
2: think it links back to something you were saying around I'm curious about the values and when you said you 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 sort of got together and started to unpack the values um, with your colleagues and I'm curious as to how much narrative work went into that and how much those values came from the narrative and the stories not just of the sport but of the people around the
1: table and during that conversation (laughs) it was an awesome process so we got everybody in the room all the athletes, all the coaches, all the um, people who were helping us with the marketing, anyone, anyone who was helping the physios. Uh, we used to um, instigate big get togethers. We try and make them as fun as possible. And then on the side, we do profiling. <laughs> so we'd spin it around the other way. Normally, it was, you know, you're doing the profiling and on the side, you have fun. We, we kind of turned it the other way because otherwise nobody would have showed up. And love it, so. Love it. Um, <laughs> in one of these brainstorming sessions when I thought right we need words if we're going to try and do this um social media project and bearing in mind so I'd just come from working um for Quicksilver and Roxy in the marketing department. so I was used to telling stories it was and um, I also produced all all women's snowboard films for four years so I came from a storytelling background a little bit as well and so I it was a tool I'd used, and I thought, okay, we need a tool, this one will do. Let's dust it off. What does it look like in this space? And so we threw out to everybody what, what are the most important things for you when you're skiing and snowboarding? Words, write them, shout them, mm-hmm. take pictures of them, draw draw them. We had this whiteboard. And by the end of the you know, half an hour, we had all these great words on the board fun, passion, progression, stoked, stomped, and psyched. And all these like really emotive words, and then some that were just like really outlandish and ridiculous, also that were great, but yeah, just a, more off the wall. Um, and so we picked the most common words, which were fun, passion, progression, and collaboration. And then by the end of that session, we had pretty much a Congo train, well, very unorganized Congo train of people jumping about the room pretending to sound the horn of stoke when they landed a trick and they even took that onto the slope and um, for a period afterwards and would be on the chairlift be on the chairlift with the coaching staff and somebody would land their trick in the snow park underneath us and if they noticed we were there they would pretend to sound their horn of stoke it was a, it became a real cultural art- artifact if you like it was an embodied feeling so um, the point of that story is, is that these feelings are embodied, they are part of the process. And if if you can connect to that body mind space, going and this is whether it's brain chemistry or, or biofeedback or narratives, it's really a holistic process to create a good narrative that has or promotes the purpose and helps to um, make the shared meaning accessible. Um, yeah, so bringing in holism, like in here, it's a different idea, but I think that's that fits in the space as well. Part of rather than done to, exactly.
0: Oh, I love it. I could listen to you guys for ages. Um, I do have a question. So you mentioned earlier about accessing consciousness, um, and for, for people that listen every week, they'll know I'm about to go off on a tangent because I I love this type of stuff and I guess the the deeper. Um, yeah it's not even theoretical yeah I'm not even sure how you describe it to be honest but um how what what is your perspective or definition of consciousness I guess and and how does that then kind of fit within all of this type of stuff because I, I to my mind it's absolutely crucial but I think it's one of these things that everybody probably has their own definition and interpretation or perception of and it's really important to understand that before we kind of unpick it and judge it or view it do you know what i mean because it's it's just something Mm. you can argue from two completely different perspectives of very much the same thing Um, so i'm always interested in in how you would see or view that and and sarah by all means jump in as well please
1: okay so um in the art of impossible um the the flow state was was touching into the consciousness space and the work that stephen cotler did in the rise of superman and stealing fire goes into to the um, non ordinary consciousness spaces. I'm gonna answer this question from my personal perspective, if that's okay. So more and more, um, as I get older, I'm spending more time in the back country and either ski touring or split boarding, which is when you have a snowboard that splits in half that you can walk up hills on and get into the back of beyond. So looking for that solitude, that space um, and starting to think about, I guess it's more either And the spirituality of action sports or the metaphysics and where metaphysics touches into phenomenology. And what is that? What's going on? Um, because when I'm in flow state snowboarding down a mountain out in the back of beyond on my own, I, I feel like I am part of the environment. It's not that I'm separate. I am at one. I'm literally part of nature. And I think that's a very powerful thought. And I I think it's something that as humans um, in in Western society we we don't really accept that we are part of nature very often. And we very much see ourselves as separate from or spectators of. And and whether that's high performance sport or the climate emergency, I think that's a there's something crucial at this time, at this juncture in human existence to recognize that we are part of nature and and to find ways to engage and access that space, whether or not it's through meditation, mindfulness, action sports, high performance sports, finding the flow state to to be able to evolve and and potentially um, move forward and and, uh, live more sustainably in the big sense and the little sense. we we need to, to find more in that space. That's consciousness creation for me. To, to then bring it back to we're social beings, we must find a way to communicate and share those experiences, make sense of them, to then do something useful with them. And um, that involves more unpacking these narratives, these shared experiences, making sense of repurposing and um, in the coach developer space for me that goes into how do you access other people's resources to help you see your blind spots and um, and and how do you become a almost um, not literally as one with them but to to form a whole a sustainable um circle of of learning to be able to do that again quite holistic thinking but i think it goes goes back to the in one way or another, back to the flow state um, as an accessible way to understand what I mean. And
2: I think you're speaking, you know, I'm hearing actually essentially holding the mirror up to ourselves, ourselves as coaches, athletes, practitioners in the high performance space, because to access our own flow state, we need to understand ourselves. And it's one of the most difficult and most challenging, but equally in my experience and opinion, the most rewarding thing we can do is to actually know how do I get the best out of myself in this high-performing environment I'm in that you mentioned the words time poor earlier on you know in this fast-paced adaptable highly competitive environment how do I ensure and what do I do to give myself a, a chance to to be in this flow state whether it's competitively or whether it's actually just to to rest and recharge which of course underpins performance what we do away from the 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 court the pitch the the slope um, so whether it's um, so for me the the consciousness of of learning about myself. And learning how I best disconnect, how I retain, obtain mental clarity, creativity and lots of what you've talked about, Leslie, um, I will be running and I will be running out in nature. I'll be on the trails in the middle of nowhere. I won't know where I'm necessarily going, but I know I'll find my way back to the car at some point. Um, if not, then I'll do a what three words for the emergency services. So always run with, you know, technology on silent, but access to the um the overland services Um, but but essentially it's that it's that sense of of freedom it's that sense of of not being switched on Uh, the world we live in right now is is fantastic we have access to everything at every moment of every day but when that's overcooked, which often it is because we have the screen time here and here and we're doing this, our brains are so overloaded. We can only actually facilitate 120 pieces of information at any one time. Now, if you think about um, the amount of information that's coming into you at any one time, it's usually more than that. Um, So therefore, at what point can we make sense of it? How do I do that as an athlete, as a practitioner, as a coach? and what's the performance benefits for when I step into my role, my role as a psychologist, my role as a coach, um, my role as a boarder. And I think just underpinning much of what we've talked about and much of this high performance environment, underpinning that with this sense of, of the, the mysterious that you talked about, the sense of the, what used to be called the fluffy stuff that actually sat in a silo away from performance Actually, we're learning and it's been referenced several times that it underpins sustained high performance, because also, you know, without without um, knowing how to disconnect both mentally and physically, um, you can perform to an incredibly high level and make great decisions in the moment, but if that is to be sustained, there has to be that disconnect. Much like, you know, you turn your iPhone off at night or you plug it in, of course you will. Because it won't perform the next day and open up a million apps and a million tabs like we have in our brain if it's not had that, that plug-in. Um, so my question is always to the athletes and coaches I work with, hold that mirror up to yourself and what do you know about getting the best out of you? And fundamentally that, that then um, is, is fantastic uh, knock-on effect, isn't it, for those that you work with?
0: Oh, two, two brilliant answers. I, I just scribbled down consciousness, self-awareness, and identity. And, and I guess as broad headings for me. They're just, it's probably like the the golden three that if, if you can spend some time working out how in whatever form for you they overlap and they interplay and, and how you manage those, I, I, I just feel like that's, yeah, I think a lot of people would be, um, I'm going to say healthier. I'm not sure whether that's the right word, but I just think they'd be, um more comfortable better versions of themselves call it whatever you want but it it feels like that's that's definitely been I've never met anyone that's discovered some of this stuff that's not felt it's been incredibly impactful and powerful for them as a human being as a as as consciousness almost so um yeah no what a what a great place to go and and I'm really glad it kind of brings me back because my second question off the back of this is talked about the kind of you can't do some of this or undertake some of this if you're not happy. And, and this leads me into another really interesting train of thought around us as seekers. So happiness is a emotion. It's a state. Again, you can call it kind of whatever you like, but it, it comes and it goes. It's not a permanent necessarily residence within us would be my argument. So can we seek happiness? Because if we start seeking something, are we then by definition changing that something and we're making it almost an arrival point so I arrive at happiness well I'm happy now that's that's good job done well what's next rather than an experience of so almost to the extent like if if we're going to do some of this do we basically need to try and wait until everybody happens to be happy at the same moment or can we construct some of this that us three getting together well i might be the one that's not happy so what how, how big an impact do i have on the discussion of creativity and and this type of stuff if, if i'm in a bad mood or do we then just need to pause it and go we'll come back to it when everyone's when everyone's feeling happy like what, what's the relationship do you find within you know the stuff you've done on our ability to seek happiness and the impact that that has on some of the things you've talked about you are listening to a rugby coach weekly podcast If you want to find out more about this podcast and all the other great benefits you can get from being a member of Rugby Coach Weekly, why not visit rugbycoachweekly.net to find out more. That's rugbycoachweekly.net to find out more about how to become a member and receive a load of free stuff. Now, back to the podcast. Speak. Yes, small question. (laughs) What?
2: Why What? Why are we seeking rather than just being? Are we not human beings or are we human seekers? I do wonder sometimes.
0: Yeah. But well, I think that's, that's almost the issue, though, isn't it? Because as soon as we label something, oh, I've got to go after this. I can't be creative unless I'm happy. So now I have to find my happiness rather than just being.
1: I think, you know, that's where things like um, uh, gratitude practice, or yoga practice a mindfulness practice. So they're all states of being and doing rather than seeking um, are really helpful in this space. And you know, the brain chemistry behind those practices would say they calm down the amygdala and they they um, allow you to feel safe enough to take the time to pay attention. And we're hardwired to, to be looking over our shoulder, looking for the threat, I think it's, I mean, you'll, you'll maybe be able to correct me, nine times more likely to see the threat yeah. and more. Um, negatively wired towards
2: threat, um, which is which is in, which is fantastic because, you know, in the moment you step into the road um, and there's a there's a bus coming towards you, you know, you're wired to, to be prepared for that. Um, but because we are wired negatively, of course, we will see the threat in situations more often than we will see the opportunity in a situation
1: and never more so than athletes um, in my experience. I think this in the action sports space, this goes really closely together with the the conversation um, coaching conversation, and you very quickly learn when you're coaching action sports, that athlete empowerment is the only place to be because the last thing you want to be doing is feeling like you're coercing a young person or an old person for that matter to hit a, a jump where they might fall and hurt themselves. That has to be their decision, but you want them to, to be able to make the best decision for them that they can. So it's so obvious that you need to, to handle that situation with care. And um, that that helps, actually, it's, you can't do it a different way. Um, and you know, in that that conversation, um, the athlete has to make a value judgment. Is this worth it? Um, and in this space, I'm going to reference a conversation I had with one of the legendary mountaineers from Scotland who moved to the States in the, the late 50s, early 60s. So a guy, a man called David Agnew, and he was a climbing partner of a famous climber called Dougal Haston. They were part of the Doo Climbing Club that came out of Glasgow. And he emigrated to America and he traveled around California at the time doing lots of the first ascents in the 60s so very part of the climbing culture over there now he lives in just outside Jackson Hole in America so if I'm ever lucky enough to go back there he's a friend of my dad's so I go and visit him and he takes me ski touring and he goes ski touring for hours every day he's in his mid-70s still and he'll be saying this year in 77 I did the first ascent of that one and in 82 that was in peak condition And, and one day I said to him how are you still alive? You spend so many days a year in avalanche terrain and so many people, especially of his generation, who spent so much time in avalanche terrain didn't make it through. Like, what's your decision-making process? How do you make decisions around the risk? So it's you know fascinating how people make decisions when it comes to, to being in risky terrain. So, well, it's always a value-based decision and uh, you know, is, is it worth it today? For me, and he put numbers on it. So he his thinking process was, okay, that slopes a southeast aspect. It's been in the sun this long today. It's got a thirty percent chance of sliding on the snowpack that's there, and me feeling this day, thirty percent. It's not a good odds for me today. And different day, I might take it on. That's not worth it. Mm-hmm. So he was able to to make that cost benefit judgment based on his personal value systems and owning the the information and the decision to be made and I definitely feel like if the athlete cannot do that so if they don't have a sense of purpose it's impossible for them to make a value judgment so if they're trying to do something for somebody else's or something else's reasons they cannot make a value-based judgment that they will be able to stand by Um, so I think there's something important there and and
2: that that's really, really lovely to hear that that sense of purpose. And, and that's something that I think in the high performing space we are driving towards. We're not there yet, but this sense of why do we do what we do? Why am I why am I going out training six, seven days a week? Why am I giving up and, and sacrifice? Why do I do this? What's my purpose beyond? The gold beyond the number, beyond the the, the tangible winning, and it's in its old sense of the word. Um, and and what's the purpose for me? Which is linking very much to you know what are my values beyond the pitch, beyond the slope, what drives me? Um, I had a similar a similar experience with with an athlete that that would make a decision on based on on the question. The question was at what cost. Because everything has a cost, even the good stuff, everything, whatever decision I make today, there's a cost to it. Now, sometimes the cost might be negative and I might re-evaluate that much like your mountaineering friend did and go on Well, today that's the cost. I've evaluated the cost. And yeah, I'm heading out there. Absolutely. Sure thing. Or I've evaluated out what cost Here's the cost. Yeah, it's worth it. I'm going um, or I'm not going. And, and at what cost is it is a really useful tool that I've used um, with lots of athletes and coaches to to simply recognise that that everything has a cost, and our values and our beliefs will underpin that decision on that cost is 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 worth it. I want I'm going to pay it, and, and that's great, and it's going to be a really good thing, or not for me today. And it's nice you also referenced Leslie, um, a lovely example from your and mountaineering friend about that moment, because the same decision on another day in another moment it will feel different. It will look different because we can only live moment to moment. And so we must never assume that because something happened in the past, or we decided to do something in a certain way that that we must do the same. They're the most dangerous words in human in human language, aren't they? Because, you know, I've always done it this way. I've always done what I've always done. So I've always got what I've always got. Um, And it's about those recognizing in the
1: moment, where am I today and at what at what cost? I think that's crucial for the the high performance moments in that if an athlete has the chance to pull something off and mm-hmm. um, how do you we, we called it radical gains obviously with a nod to the opposite of marginal <laughs> gains and um, how do you nice. support those moments to happen mm-hmm. so when you're you know as a coach and manager and the, the team you're like something big could happen here if the athlete wants to you know this is you're seeing the portal open up so you know how do you support the athlete to be able to go and i feel like i can do this today i i will do it you know why wouldn't i yeah instead of oh no i better not um and that's a really tricky thing to be able to facilitate
2: yeah, and, and much of that is, is around the, the environment that, that we create, isn't it, for the athlete, for the, for the people and the voices and, you know, the, the sense of challenging and support in equal measure from any coach they have or, or anyone that they're, they're working with, knowing that, that if, in your example, they do decide to go for it and it goes well, great, but if it doesn't, that the value of them remains unchanged. The value of who they are as a human being remains unchanged, whether they, they make that jump or don't make that jump, but they feel challenged enough and supported of, you know, the right questioning, nodding them towards making that decision for themselves um, with enough, enough sense of, of both threat and, and safety in equal measure. I know sounds really um uh, contradictory and people question me on it all the time how can you have threat and safety in equal you know in equal measure in the same space um but but that at its best is what we create in high performance I say high performance I'd like to change the narrative to healthy performance and stop talking about high performance because that in itself anyway there would, like, rabbit hole I'm gonna back out um <laughs>
1: I, I totally i see where you're coming from
2: <laughs> yeah yeah that's for another time maybe um but you know let, let's start thinking about these healthy healthy performance environments because
1: guess what high will be a byproduct and um, you know an unhealthy action sports environment would be an athlete making a call to do the trick they would never been landed before mm-hmm. because whatever the tv camera was there and they wanted to be on the tv yeah. <laughs> unhealthy mm-hmm. decision mm-hmm. whereas good decision making in action sports mm-hmm. at the highest level is extremely calculated and it may come down to the Laird hamilton moment when they have to pull off a move nobody's ever thought of doing ever to mm-hmm. to um, you know get themselves out of a situation but they're very very calculated mm-hmm. and that happens
2: because of everything that he has experienced in his life leading into that moment where he is then able in that for an onlooker looking on, he's made that decision in the moment. Oh, my goodness, that's incredible. But everything comes from our lived experiences, from the narrative of his world, the stories that he has around himself, around his role, his values, those around him, the environment. Therefore, in that moment, what looks like a, a really split decision to second, a split moment decision, which it was, but, you know, we can unpack that back to the moment. I'm going to get deep here, but literally the moment he entered the earth. I
0: don't want to interrupt. This is just one. Um, <laughs> I'm really hesitant to pause it, but I think I think where we kind of got to and where we're going, I think they they'll they just merge seamlessly as we kind of talked about beforehand. So, um, Sarah, do you want to just kind of like lead us into Cath stuff and, and the long win and, and how that kind of resonates with, with what we've talked about so far?
2: yeah sure. Um, so the, the, just to give a, a backstory, um, Phil and I have talked on this podcast before, and, and I was invited on, and it was some time ago, and, and I talked about the long win. so when when you invited me back on, um, much like yourself, Leslie, I was thinking, gosh, you know there are so many books I've read, there are so many great podcasts I've listened to or conversations that I would want to share, but fundamentally, If I think about my beliefs, my values, what resonates with me as a human first, but also as somebody that has spent decades now in performance sport, it came back to finding our meaning and our purpose in what we do um, and redefining this sense of winning and success. Um, And on a personal note, having having spent nearly a decade in professional football and and now stepped away from that space, um, it resonates even more around you know what what is our value and how do we find that out as a human being or as an athlete um, as to to. Beyond our badge, beyond the badge we wear, who we are, what we do day to day. So in my case as a performance psychologist, if I'm not attached to a Premier Premier League football club anymore, am I any less valuable or in, or less competent in my role in life than I was six months ago? Absolutely not. Um, and that's come from from deep reflection of, of performing as an athlete and working as a sports psychologist. And it, the long win is. Is essentially a, a way of thinking, and it's a book that I read. Um, my goodness, early last year now, I think, um, written by Kath Bishop. So Kath Bishop um, is human being first, and she has also um, she's also been a, a British rower. She, in partnership with Catherine Granger, was the world champion in coxless pair in two thousand and three, two thousand and four. Won a, a silver medal at the Olympic Games. Um, and that was following a career as a diplomat um, and she's now a leader and speaker and and as I said the the book The Long Win was her her first book and as I'm speaking I'm hearing my voice almost feeling guilty because I've just introduced somebody in the most um, traditional way because actually I nuanced that Kath is a human being first, but then I went straight to the fact she's won this and she's won that and she, because rightly or wrongly, would we be having this conversation would I be having it around Kath Bishop and the great book and the work she did if she hadn't won medals, that's maybe another podcast, but that sort of guides me towards what this book is about, which is the the sense of of what winning is and what what it it means to an athlete um, and in the sports space. Um, We we use the narrative, don't we, all the time of of, um, there's, you know, there's everything to win, you know, winners, winners essentially are more valuable than um, losers and it's all to play for. We use battle terminology, you know, win at all costs, we're on a winning streak, she or he's got a winning smile, Um, you know, uh, nice guys finish last, you have to be in it to win it. And yesterday I turned on the the TV to watch the news more for me. And I hear battle references in in politics and in in, uh, newsreaders' um, language and narrative that we're going into battle. Um, Therefore, there's going to be winners, high value, losers, low value. Um, So it's everywhere around us, this this narrative of, of winning being material, winning being something that is linked to gold medals linked to numbers and losing being something that that you know they, they didn't they never won a medal therefore the value of them of a person could be questioned um, so reading Kath's book was an absolute revelation I think it just spoke to my own personal experiences um, of being process driven of, of valuing what it is the effort that we put into to our competitive world and that again is one of the original meanings of the word competition and winning was about the process of the hard work and the effort the work ethic that had gone into um that that winning that winning experience whatever that might be um so i guess in a nut, in a nutshell um i think it's really important to we've talked about it briefly the narrative the storytelling and you know what it means what is the purpose of high performing sport what is the purpose of sport we've had the the white review come out and and it was very damning around uh, the culture and the reevaluation the reassessment needed more broadly in this country potentially of winning environments and competitive environments at the highest level, at the Olympic level and, and the professional level. Um, there's lots of amazing work being done. Um, some of it actually Leslie's Leslie made reference to in, the, in the, your space. Um, but what is it that brings value and how do we ensure that actually we don't lose a sense of, of winning and we don't lose the importance of of finding our flow state, of competing at the highest level. We don't lose that. But at the same point, when, when we don't get the gold medal, we don't end up with athletes that leave the sport feeling they have limited sense of self, sense of purpose. Um, ident- you know, we, we know that... I. Lots of research into identity foreclosure of athletes um, and those that I've worked with. Certainly I've had experiences of those that that struggle to to know who they are beyond a badge or 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 a sponsorship deal. Um, And it's about unpicking the value of that person first and the athlete second. And, you know, what is it that, that they want to achieve and who's going to help them on their way when they achieve it? are they going to find going back to what you were saying do they find happiness actually no sometimes short-lived very short-lived where does the happiness come from well when they look over their shoulder and they look back at 10 years for example in a professional football club do they look back and they think oh that was a great win against Chelsea in 2013 or do they go here are the people in my experience they go here are the people I met here are the experiences I had these are the These are the the kind of the the sense of self and the the mirrors that people have helped me to hold up to myself. This is what I've learned. This is where I screwed up and what I learned from it. These were my tough bits. And and actually very often the reflection of an experience is less based in I won this and I lost that and more based in some of what, again, it links to what Leslie was talking about, creativity, connection, clarity, um, and the meaning and purpose of the experience that they had. So the frame around which they put that experience. So, do they put it in the frame of actually, it it wasn't good, bad, or ugly. It had all three, and this is what it gave me. Um, or do they put it in the frame of, well, I I didn't make get a full a first team contract when I wanted it, um, and therefore I'm now only playing League Two football. Therefore, you know, I was a failure. So the the, the perception. The perception is everything and and we can help facilitate conversations and development so that actually more often athletes are able to to put their experiences into a helpful and a healthy framework that supports the development and understanding of them long into retirement, long into other ways, other um, avenues that they might enter into life Um, so that actually it's not all about the winning, it's not all about that one badge. So Kath actually, um, uh, in, in the book, she talks about the three Cs. So the three Cs are something that um, I think fit quite nicely and again would uh, resonate with some of what we've heard already on this podcast. But her three Cs are clarity, constant learning, and connection. So when she's talking about clarity, she's talking about in high performance, healthy cultures, healthy environments, be it business, sport, education, um, what matters to us. So the wider perspective on what success looks like long term beyond this season, beyond this month. Um, So that's really kind of digging into the why, um, you know, the sense of purpose. What's the impact that we want to have on the world around us? Um, and the world around us I, I mean not just now as I sit here now but the world around us moving forward um, see constant learning so developing the constant learning approach defining success beyond just a medal but through personal growth comparison is the thief of joy but very often um, athletes particularly in my experience will compare themselves to the the guy or girl next to him and what they're doing but again it's that developing a sense of personal growth and success being defined by what they choose to do um, and focusing on what they can control um, so you know the the endless to-do lists and she talks about the checklists of achievements um, that we often control ensure that we keep growing and developing but how do we cope when we don't tick off all these to-do lists and, and how do we frame that and keep moving forward as a person and keep developing and the third c which is the one that I would resonate really highly and strongly with in the environments that I've worked in so far is that developing connection so the sea of connection so proactively investing in relationships as a priority in everything we do I'm often asked the question you know as a as a female walking into a football club into a male-dominated environment nearly 10 years ago um, how was that for you you know um did and I hope people have these assumptions you know it must have been tough and you know I, I can't speak to whether it was tough or not it, I can only learn from from my experiences i never had blocks and barriers put in front of me I am a female I have ologist on the end of my job title I am well aware that that didn't necessarily serve me Served me well when I stepped in in terms of pre-judgment and pre-assumptions around what I might be or how I might function, but essentially, I'm I'm Sarah. I'm a human being. This is my background. This is this is you know I've I've played sport. I've been in in um, competitive environments my whole life. I'm I'm here. Let's have a coffee. Let's have the corridor chats, the the, the coffee machine catch ups, and the best work that I've ever done, um, and to this day continue to do is is out on the pitch or on the slope or, wandering down the corridor or just connecting with the people around you, beyond what your title might be. Who cares? You know it. Your, your title is that that we're here and we're connecting, and and Kath very much talks about investing. In relationships as a priority. So focusing on the who in our lives, colleagues, partners, family, friends, um, and actually how do we get away from a competitive zero-sum game approach to life? You know, this all or nothing thinking, which is another sort of, it's a cognitive distortion and it's a common thinking trap, isn't it? You know, all or nothing thinking. If, if I don't win today, then I am a failure. Um, and moving away from this zero-sum competitive uh, game so lots of lots of connection I guess with uh, much of what um, you were talking about in in the first half Leslie Um, and I I think certainly it shifted my thinking and the long win for me gave me a bit of a structure and started to help me make sense of some of the work I was already doing in my environments and the ways that I was thinking and my own beliefs and values. And it started to to give me a sense-making tool, particularly the three C's around how do I make sense and bring this into the performance environment, which then supported my own professional decisions around um, performance culture work and facilitating these open discussions with the coaches I worked with and with athletes and creating that part of rather than done to culture autonomy, listening, you know, it's about asking a few a few um open questions in the right place at the right time to support others to know how to get the best out of themselves. Because I have not met one coach, no disrespect, or one psychologist that ever has the answers for somebody else's journey. We don't. All we can do is actually support them. to to figure it out and and to to go on that journey with them. Um, And so I I suppose that the power of connection was a big thing and is a big thing for me in in how I work um, and how I do that with people.
1: I very much resonate with that. I think um, collaborative approaches Mm. in high performance sport are not championed enough and that idea that you know, learning is done to the learner or coaching oh, is goodness. something you do to athletes and um, as opposed to you're in it together and and um, you can only see your blind spots through somebody else's eyes whether you're the coach or the athlete yes. or the coach yeah. developer the mm-hmm. psychologist what you're you're in it together mm-hmm. and it can be a yeah. beautiful learning journey mm-hmm. for everyone um, and yeah. or it might not happen at all mm-hmm. so best make it happen absolutely um, I hear that totally I think there's for me I, I often wrestle with there's you know words that are thrown about from the mm-hmm. systemic perspective and mm-hmm. um, ownership and empowerment and what we really mean by that and that idea that that people need to own things I think hampers a lot of of good things that could happen and um, whereas for me empowerment means mutual respect and trust which you're you've mentioned an important part of that learning process. Mm. Mm. Um, so I, I really resonate with the idea of learning being the point and it being very mm. much a process over time.
2: Yeah, and, and it resonates and it sort of links to to that. It speaks to the support and challenge piece as well, that that we're not there just to to support, or to, but we're there to challenge. Um, and when it's there in equal measure, and the athlete knows that, that that they will, they will take, of, of course, they will, they will take some ownership, but they're not on their own doing that, you know, when it all goes wrong, the fingers not pointed at. there's a collaboration, there are conversations, there's support for them to be able to get the best from themselves. And that essentially, if we ask enough why questions, and again, it's another thing that I've used a lot in meetings, particularly with staff, with staff that are at loggerheads. Because one member started, you know, particularly in values meetings. And if we ask enough why questions and and inference chaining and we we go high enough, essentially, I've never come out of a a meeting without all all the people getting to the same why. The same simple why around wanting to help this team or this athlete get the very best from themselves. By best, I don't necessarily mean gold or numbers. I mean experience. Um, and the byproduct might be numbers or gold, f- fine, whatever. That, that, but the, the common why and the shared purpose for as long as we can get there, it's really important that, that we do challenge each other and that we do disagree on the way on the way up the chain. But ultimately, we all have that same fundamental shared ownership, shared purpose of, of what we're doing in our environment. Which, which makes me think about the, I don't know if um, in your, your conversations recently, uh, Phil, whether the, the psych, psychological smoothie um, analogy has has been something that you've come across, but it's something that um, Rusty and I were talking about recently. Um, and I, I, I credit this to a fantastic colleague of mine, Elliot Newell, who, who I've known for many, many years in the, psycho, in the sports psych space. And I can't remember who he credited it to, um but but you know i'm, I'm not going to take the credit but i think it speaks really nicely to the collaborative approach and and thinking about where we're moving as sports systems particularly with psychology that um so if we take if we take the old way of thinking the the psychologist is the apple the coach is the pear. we've got a physio banana over here and we've got the 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 um the satsuma satsuma strength and conditioning coach and all the fruits in the fruit bowl right and we're all in that fruit bowl of the fruit bowl of the environment wanting this athlete wanting the athlete or the team to get the best best from themselves um that's fine but when the athlete has a hamstring problem they'll go straight to the pear or straight to the banana and and they might might you know perhaps the problem solved and they do some work on the hamstring but but the the satsuma doesn't know anything about it but the satsuma actually has a great relationship with this athlete but if we're all just in the fruit bowl operating as separate bits of fruit it's no good to anyone the athlete doesn't really benefit neither does the system and more and more we're thinking about um the way in which we can work collaboratively so the fruit gets cut up into a fruit bowl and we're now a fruit salad brilliant because we've actually got the apple the pear the banana the satsuma chatting to each other talking about the athlete and, and we've we build a bigger picture from a psychological point of view but still the psychologist i can't remember what i was in this was either banana or the pear i reference it differently each time i tell the story the apple. i was the apple that's right so i'm the apple but ultimately when we have the fruit salad approach we can still sometimes expect that you know the athlete is struggling with emotional control. Therefore, send them to the apple, even in the fruit salad approach, which which doesn't necessarily mean that the apple can is the best placed person just because the apple's a psychologist doesn't mean they have the best connection, relationship or ability to get the best from that athlete. I, in my experience, at its very best, psychology is best done when it is then put into the blender, becomes a smoothie. It becomes a smoothie whereby you don't know where the pear, the apple, the grapes, the avocado and the satsuma begin and finish because it is running through everything we do every day. And certainly my approach and my experience as a psychologist is that the best psychology is done by the coach and or the physio, the performance analyst, analyst, um, the bus driver, the kit man or woman, the psychologist sometimes. But it's with and through every conversation, through every day and everything we do, and it's not owned by anybody, um, and it's not done just by the just by the apple in the corner um, uh, that doesn't have that relationship with the the pear or the satsuma. So I think creating creating great smoothies um, and and great environments is is about that is about it running through conversations, and and for me that is to link back to, to your comment, Leslie, that is utopia
1: for collaborative working. I, I think I, I, I love that analogy. Thanks for sharing and you know, I couldn't agree more. Um, one, one thing I would um, bring to, to the conversation, and, and this is more from a coach developer practitioner's perspective, um, sometimes the, the most deepest learning is spiky. And I'm going to reference a, a great author. Um, uh, he's, a, he's more with the activism space. Um, so he's called Alistair Macintosh and he has a, a concept called the shadow strike. So when, when you um, have a learning area, there's always a bit of dissonance. And as a coach developer, you will experience that it's a bodily reaction as well as something rational that you can mm. unpack cognitively. So if you're supporting a coach and they, they come across an area of potential learning, and um, you will experience struggle as well. So it's where your your blind spots are matching enough to open up that portal for a radical gains moment or a shadow mm. strike. And that can feel spiky, and frustrating to use the words from the art of impossible, mm. and often in in the, system, the high performance sports systems at the moment, that feeling is, is um, kicked out the door as soon as it appears, because it, it's seen as there's something wrong. It's, uh, what's you know whose fault is it? Whereas that's that's the opportunity for learning uh, or you know learning self awareness capacity building. And it might be, you know, to meet the learner's mm. needs, um, but the, the teacher's needs also, or the group, the collabor everyone who's collaborating's needs. So, the smoothie needs a bit of lime. Yeah, uh, whatever. 100%. <laughs> You're going lose lots. Yeah, of it doesn't taste analogies. good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think mm. um, it's not. It doesn't have to always feel and smooth and nice and there will be frustrating moments there will be spikiness Mm -hmm. as long as you're prepared to hold them with Mm -hmm. respect and trust Mm -hmm. then those are opportunities Mm -hmm. so we're talking about
2: those smoothies and i've had a few where they they've got chewy bits still you know they're chewy they get stuck in your teeth um they're a bit lumpy um because absolutely uh, by smoothie um you know by collaborative collaborative does not mean that we all um there's no cognitive diversity collaborative does not mean that we all sit around a table and we all agree with each other and nod nicely and then and then move on because actually nothing great ever came from that It, it is about sharing sharing those different perspectives acknowledging those that are the different perspectives or experiences to yours and just thinking well where can we add value towards the broader goal Um, and, and the, the key thing you said there around that, that respect and acknowledgement of that in the first place, which has to come from the the people within the system, um, and for them to be able to do that and feel that they can do that, the system has to, has to, I guess, be developed in a way that, again, that, that practitioner, the coach, the sports psychologist, whoever it might be, feels that they can. They can be themselves, and they can give their ideas, and that that's okay.
1: I think there's a real need for ethical frameworks in this space. I mean, I know there's lots of news news stories about the ethical advisors being um, got rid of at the moment in the general news, but you know, I th- yeah. I think the idea of um, virtue ethics might bring something. Any, you know, there's there's a not enough discussion about what that looks like in, in the high performance space, I think.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think I think people again, all or nothing think, thinking, they think, well, if it's best collaborative is smooth and everyone agrees and nods around a table and at its worst, everyone is you know, at each other's throats and, and ethically it becomes a really unsafe space and a really um, unhealthy space to be in. And actually it's not, but it has to be facilitated and it has to be framed in in a way that is helpful and healthy that doesn't mean smooth but it means healthy and it means that there is you know no no damage um, to the human beings that are around that table
0: i think it's fascinating i was just uh in my mind running through the example from bath rugby quite recently so they um had a a part-time psychologist um, who was fantastic she was I think a a lot of people didn't know this at the time and she's kind of come out and explained some of it afterwards so she she was offered the full-time role couldn't take it for a number of reasons which was a shame but then um, the role was offered to uh, another individual who I I can't remember the exact wording calls himself either a mental skills coach or a A mind mind, a mind
2: coach we've had a massive there's been a huge debate on social media, particularly within my community as a sports psychologist around this. I'm, I'm aware and, of it.
0: And it blew up and it was just fascinating to suddenly see loads of people operating in, you know, really successful environments and, and you know, very professional individuals suddenly become very protective of psychology. Mm-hmm. And and I was, it, it was fascinating because we, we almost fall into this, Lots of the time, lots of people are, oh, we can pick up ideas from anywhere. Like we're not closed minded, you know, growth mindset. We'll find, we'll find snippets in everything. And we'll look at business and we'll look at whatever we can get our hands on for that, that tiny, you know, marginal gain coin, the, coin the phrase, but suddenly it went to, well, no, 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 no. Like if you're not registered, like, and you've not done the training we've done well, you you're not, you, you can't possibly interact with anybody from a psychological perspective. And I was just, I was just watching all these tweets going, but I do that every day as a coach. Like I'm not, I'm not trained in psychology. I love psychology. I find it fascinating, but I'm not trained in it. But every conversation I have with an athlete will have an element of psychology in this, but no one's saying that's dangerous or damaging. A a physio is probably the one person that knows more about the athletes in a professional environment than anybody else they're not trained psychologists but they're given advice and listening and doing all of these things wonderfully well and and it was just it was so bizarre to see suddenly psychology become the preserve of sports psychologists and that was something i mean there's some very good people saying we probably need to think this through like we're not the only people that psychology isn't exclusive to a psychologist like we need to rationalize this but Mm -hmm. but just almost the. Hatred would be too strong a word, but the real, the real, little bit it probably was that somebody outside of our our network has got a job that should be ours, and and I would advocate that support staff in any of these roles are, are horrendously underfunded in professional sport. And there needs to be way more you know better paid jobs not 25 grand a year for for somebody to make a sacrifice because oh well it's a great opportunity like that's probably a different debate but I think it's important to to kind of reference that point because I think it has an impact on I guess almost professional jealousy or concern around some of the people that do get these roles but I think the really interesting thing for this was there was at least five or six tweets from professional players going nobody better like Done the best job possible for me ever. Like they, they literally could not recommend the person any more highly, and yet all these other people go, no, 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 we can't possibly do this. And it was just, just epitomizes maybe where the system, inverted commas, has issues with itself. That there's just there's no agreement on what on what good or better looks like. Mm,
2: and there's a, I mean, there's there's a there's a big ethical piece on here, and and like I won't go into it, but certainly. I can only say that actually one of the most interesting um, commentaries on this that, that really sparked me was to go, what are we doing as a profession, as sports psychologists, what are we doing wrong and how can we be better when there are people that, that don't have necessarily the official qualifications, but they're out there clearly doing like a really good job and that's not in question. So uh, for me, it's not about, it's not about that. It's about, us okay as a profession there's something that that is not being done as 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 brilliantly as it perhaps could be and actually we need to look at ourselves um because I certainly would align with what you're saying around I noticed a huge (laughs) (laughs) defensive response from from many many colleagues um and yet actually I, I I revert back to to what I know which is hold the mirror up to myself or my profession to go, okay, let's look at that. Um, And essentially um, I think there are some fantastic with all the qualifications under the sun. And there are some with all the qualifications under the sun that simply don't land or sit or fit within high performance contexts that well. Likewise, there are some people that, that don't have the qualifications that will sit and fit and understand and will be open enough to upskill themselves to make sure they've got mentorship, supervision and, and do an amazing job. Um, and I think that's a very individual thing. And certainly my role um, and my experiences is... is I am there to look out for the people, looking out for the people. As a psychologist, how can I support that coach, that physio, that that S&C? How can our conversations support them in the work they do with the athletes? Because often, as you referenced, they have unbelievable relationships and unbelievable um, power and influence. And I mean that in a positive way um, on those that they're talking with. And so who's looking out for them, helping them to, to be Better at it and also to look out for themselves and understand themselves better in that process.
1: I I think um, this is a a case where we could really um, have a conversation about what does what what's the value of excellence what does excellent human endeavor look like in this space of course taking in the whole ethos of collaborative learning Mm. and collaborative approaches and optimizing human potential Mm. and to what extent or to what effect does the current system, high-performance sports system, and Phil, you mentioned it, and the way um, the prestige carrot is dangled in front of support services or any staff members, um, and Olympic medals are tied to those roles as well as the roles of athletes Mm. to the point where um, I have heard people (laughs) and state that it's potentially a form of exploitation towards an end that isn't um, justly financially rewarded Uh, so you're building in a whole heap of bad stuff to a system and expecting excellence to come out the other end and where you're you're really naming it as winning and you you've shot your own feet off you go right back to those external motivators Mm. and None of those intrinsic, purposeful, meaningful, lifelong learning, the long-wind approaches have space to flourish when you've set the system up in such a way. Time and space.
0: <laughs> what What do you think is the tipping point? It'd be, um, um, my, I, the reason I ask that, my view would be, lots. you'd hear lots of people say the system, and, and we'd have said it here, but what, what do we actually mean when we say the system? Ultimately, m- my belief would be the system doesn't, it's not a system if there's nobody in it. So it's not a con it's not a self-sustaining construct, right? Like we it it only operates on historical values based on the individuals that are currently within those roles. So how do we get to a point? And, and it's definitely shifted. I think we'd all recognize that. But how how do we get to that point where it, it does tip the balance to then be more of this and and again maybe there's no arrival point at this maybe it's just about this being a constant exploration of what values and you know good coaching and and good high performance sport behaviors entail and everything else we're never going to arrive at a point where it's ultimately completely safe and we've done our job but do you think that is about more people being more aware more people having gone through it are we waiting for a generation of Let's call them sports administrators with a perhaps now old school philosophy to move on from their jobs and new newer thinking individuals moving into those. Like, w- what are your guys perceptions on at what point this becomes unstoppable?
2: I think there's certainly a generational diversity piece in here that, that's a natural rolling of the experiences that and how they'll differ. Um, the experiences i've had at, at my age somebody 10 years older somebody 20 years younger and and the world by experiences i mean not just in sport but the world around them you know social media included the pandemic um the the experiences and and the way in which culture and learning is changing all the time so there is a piece in there that naturally is evolving over time it's not about getting rid of old school thinking that didn't work and suggesting everything that's gone before as has has been terrible or, or unhealthy or failed but it's about actually saying well what what is sustainable and, and what really drives human performance and ultimately how much of that is based around connection relationships and experiences and grounded in in human first athlete second banging on my drum here but I will be banging on my drum because it's my drum and I've banged it for many years and I'll continue to, to change the rhythm but keep the drum for years to come.
1: Um, I'll, I'll help you bang on your drum. I, I agree. agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love to see an attempt, and I don't say this is easy. I don't have any solutions. I'll put my cards on the table. don't think this is an easy nut to crack, no. um, but I'd love to see an attempt to find a different set of accountability measures. So, medals being the main accountability measure, and although um, some people would say that's not the case, um, it most definitely is. Um, In terms of how funding is ultimately given out, it skews the whole system. So even if stated intentions are great and towards the aims that we've talked about, if the accountability measures do not match those intentions, the the intentions will soon get diverted or subverted, however you look at that. So there's a a bit of work to be done there, I think, and how um, money is accounted for, how roles are framed and described and communicated, and what that means for the dominant narrative in high-performance sport.
0: Two yeah. Wonderful answers. Thank you very much. Um, I'm really conscious of both your times and I genuinely could sit and, and just kind of listen to you both um, for the rest of the afternoon, but are you, you've got day jobs and other things to do. So um, I think if we kind of pause that one there, but I'm just going to say, have you got any other suggestions in terms of content, like what's on your bedside table at the moment that you're reading or engaging with that you'd like to give a shout out to, um, and also where can people find you and engage with you.
1: Um, I'm I'm fascinated to hear the recommendations from Sarah. (laughs) At the moment, this is not a recommendation, it's just what I'm reading, but I'm finding it really interesting. It's a book called The Western Isles, and it was written in 1997. And why it's interesting is it's unpacking the way um, land was was bought and funded pre the formation of the Scottish Parliament and going into a a lot of the ways that charities raise money and how they used single issues to raise money that inadvertently went towards a slightly different issue um, and what that meant for locals and land and land use. So there's some big ethical questions in in there. It's a really interesting book. Um, I would recommend the Looking Sideways podcast. Which is a podcast about action sports and other related endeavors, and presented by Math, Matt Barr, Matthew Barr. And he unpacks all the, the interesting cultural and other stories from action sports by interviewing action sports people from you know, people working in the, the service side of action sports to delivery to high performance, right across the board. Very interesting podcast.
0: Wonderful. Thank you very much. Oh, where can just, people find you, Leslie? What's your... Oh,
1: um, find me on Instagram, Leslie McKenna.
0: Wonderful. Thank you.
1: I was just writing that podcast down. It sounds really good.
2: Um, from a reading point of view, I have just revisited... Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I remember being introduced to this many, many years ago and on hearing the title thinking, oh my God, it's a bit deep for me, you know, oh, oh, way beyond, way beyond. It's a fantastic book. So Victor Frankl was a prisoner of war during um, the second world war in one of the German um, concentration camps, a psychologist. And it's a short, it, here you are, here's a winner. It's a short book. It's really readable. It's it's reads a little bit more like a fi- a, a, a fiction a story, I suppose. But essentially, he's unpacking the reasons why the the his, his observations. So he survived and went on to to become the founder of a psychology called logotherapy. But he was unpacking the. meaning and the purpose behind those prisoners that actually just gave into having having nothing uh, literally nothing food clothing um, nothing and no purpose and giving into to to death and not surviving and his observations of those that did and the meaning and the purpose that they found in this you know the absolute most awful conditions with death on a and decisions around death on a on a daily basis and so I've just I've just reread it and I would really recommend it in terms of the the outlook that it that it gives you. It's incredibly accessible book. You know, it's, it's not written in um, particularly academic language. It's very, very easy to read. Um, so I've just just finished that. Um, and I would say in terms of what I'm listening to, um, I listen to um, a lady called Kate Cocker. So Kate Cocker does the everyday, it's a podcast called Everyday Positivity. And it starts my day every day and it's a a two minute every single day. She can can be found on um, Spotify or or Apple podcasts and she's a psychologist and she just gives a little bit of daily, daily, it's not positivity um, because toxic positivity is a a topic that I'm sure you might have covered or will do in the future, but it's just a daily little uh, inspirational hit. Um, And I'm also halfway through Winning Together, uh, the book by Kate and helen richardson walsh the gb hockey players um which is a, a fascinating story um and again really accessible for for coaches and performance practitioners around their journey of um how high performing teams can operate in in the culture that that um, around winning and around vision, values, behaviors, meaning, and purpose. It links a lot to what we've talked about today. So I'd recommend that winning together. I can be found at um, on Twitter at Sarah Sports Psych um, or Google Performance Edge Psychology Sarah Murray. Uh, and I'm always open to to DMs and and conversations. Uh, everything's worth worth the price of a, a virtual or a physical coffee.
0: Fantastic. Um- yeah.
1: i I would second that and if anyone fancies backcountry adventures you can join us at wandering workshops we're ah, wanderingworkshops.com
0: amazing thank you both so much as I said I genuinely yeah I've absolutely loved this I think some brilliant recommendations in there and just yeah very I yeah deep deep without being too deep topics I think they're just things that I hope you know people find really really interesting on a on a daily basis as you say just so much about values and how we engage with things and why we engage with things that it's it's not something we're ever gonna i guess yeah arrive at but it's something that should probably preoccupy us maybe more than it does a lot of the time so um thank you both for your contributions absolutely wonderful um i'm gonna round up the roundup so to those listening we hope you enjoyed the episode uh thanks again to sarah and leslie for coming on and contributing to such a brilliant discussion links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on rugby coach weekly as always I'd like to thank you for listening wish you all the best and go well